You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Wow. Uh, Somebody after the first service said, you know, James, you're going to really have to up your game to be as cool as Derek. Because, <laughs> I mean, he wears his hat backwards, plays drums, twirls his drumstick, and then comes up here and preaches. And I said, look, I was cool before he was born. Okay, so I put the cool in cooler. Was. Than you. That's right. Was. Also, I like to recognize people when they do things uh, extraordinary that I know how difficult they are. Our own Michelle Leverett, who is running our soundboard this morning, just finished her doctor's degree. Yes. In education. She uh, has finished her dissertation and defended the dissertation. And uh, I remember what that was like. It was 1988 when I finished mine after four years of hard labor. And uh, four of the toughest years of my life. And our own Derek has started his doctorate now. Yep. Um, had his first, uh, first class meeting uh, by Zoom. Man, it would have been nice to have had Zoom. You know, when I did mine, we didn't have Zoom. We didn't have the internet. I had to physically go to the library. I mean, how cumbersome was that? I finished my dissertation, which was 370-something pages long, on a dot matrix printer. My first computer, you know, the MS-DOS with the real floppy disk. I mean, who can do MS-DOS? I mean, you know, I don't know. It's a miracle got through. There were times when people actually had to do those things on typewriters. Yep. And, uh, and if, if you, you messed up? And if you messed up, you had to retype the entire page. page. Yep. No corrections on a doctoral level are allowed on the dissertation. So anyway, proud of Michelle for the hard work that she put in. Yes. Uh, she's been a classroom teacher for many years and just decided she wanted a further education. And so uh, proud of you, Michelle, for, for the work that you do. And Derek is getting started. You've been in school constantly for how many years Since now? Since I've known you. Is it just about? Yeah. Yeah, well, I've talked you into going to UTA like within a year of when you came here. Yep. And he's just been in school, two master's degrees, now finishing this. And so uh, by the time I refuse to call him Dr. Derek. <laughs> so I will die before he finishes. <laughs> well, you've got about two and a half years left. So, uh, <laughs> well, maybe then I'll just completely retire. <laughs> maybe I don't want to die by that time. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Daniel, the fourth and the fifth chapter. We've been doing a study on Daniel on Sunday mornings that we've titled Unshakable because that is who the prophet Daniel was. In a hostile environment, his faith was unshakable. As you're finding your way to the book of Daniel, I'll introduce what we're talking about this morning. You know, in our universe, there are universal laws. There are laws of physics, laws of science that we are able to observe in our universe and those are immutable. In other words, that means they cannot be changed and they are incredibly dependable. We just saw an illustration of that over the last uh, oh, month or so ago where a couple of billionaires built rocket ships and went up into space and came back down. And I was really intrigued by the fact that one of them, I guess it was uh, 
uh, it was the Amazon guy, what's his name? Jeff, Jeff Bezos. Bezos, Bezos, Bezos. Mm -hmm. um, that his actual rocket booster that got the capsule up that high actually came back down and landed on a pad site that was about the size of a helicopter pad. Now, folks, if the laws of the universe were not dependable, they would have never been able to figure that out. The rotation of the earth, gravity, all of the kinds of things, but they set that thing down on that pad from, I don't know, when it, when it uh, released from the capsule, but it was probably 40 or 50, 60 miles up in the air. You see, that illustrates the immutability and the dependability of the laws of the universe. We count on them for our living. One of them is gravity. And you've heard me say this before, possibly, that you cannot beat gravity. Mm. You can say, well, I don't believe in gravity, and uh, say, well, I'm not going to live by gravity, and then go jump off a building, but you don't defeat gravity. You simply will demonstrate gravity <laughs> because you cannot beat it. Now, you can defy it for a short while, for instance, in an airplane, but when the airplane runs out of fuel, then you are no longer going to be defying gravity. You are simply going to demonstrate it because gravity is immutable. It's always there, and it will always win. There are also spiritual laws, and I don't mean by spiritual laws. I don't mean like the Ten Commandments, although those are, but I'm talking about those things that God has ordained that spiritual things, by which spiritual things operate, and they are immutable and they are dependable. You can defy these spiritual laws, but you can't defeat them. You've heard me say many times before that one of those laws is that time and truth walk hand in hand. And that's always the case. Given time, truth is always revealed. Now, for a period of time, Maybe truth is not revealed, but eventually, with time, truth is going to be revealed. There's another principle, as I was thinking about this text this week, that goes kind of along with that, that illustrates really what our message is about, and that is this. Pride and time always lead to destruction. That's right. Time and truth walk hand in hand, but pride and time always lead to to destruction. Proverbs 16 18 says pride goes before destruction. In other words, there's going to come pride, and if there's pride, then there is going to be destruction. Now, folks, it may take time. You may be able to defy that for a period of time, but that principle is going to be shown. Philippians 2 says that someday every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some in faith and adoration, and some in fear and eternal separation from God. So here's what happens this morning. It's a little different kind of message than we normally teach. It's narrative scripture. It's stories. Chapter 4 and 5 of Daniel tell us two very important stories that illustrate this principle that time plus pride or pride plus time equals destruction that it always eventually happens. Mm. So there are two stories, one in Daniel 4 and another one in Daniel 5, that demonstrate that principle and illustrate God's attitude toward pride. Now, now, now let me say here at the beginning here, what we're going to do for a few moments is we're going to tell each story. One of them, the first one that Derek is going to tell, some of you are more familiar with than perhaps the second story in chapter 5 that I'm going to tell. 
But I'm going to remind you that the reason that God included these stories in His Word is not just because they're interesting stories. The New Testament tells us that all things that happened in the Old Covenant happened as an example for us. In other words, to show us something, to teach us something. So when we look at these Old Testament stories, we read them. Yes, they're interesting. But the question we have to ask is, what is God saying to us? What is it that is being communicated to us through these experiences? And so the first one is the way we've kind of said it is Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon. Remember, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been carried off into captivity from Jerusalem into Babylon. They are servants and slaves to the king of Babylon, who was at the time Nebuchadnezzar. But what we're going to find in chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar begins to nibble with the beasts. You like that? Nibbles I thought that was kind of cool. Beast. I, do, I think they it's go, great. Well, what does that mean? What does that, that mean? It sets the anticipation level. I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you. Well, tell we're, us. We're going to start in verse 4. First three verses are, are kind of what Nebuchadnezzar says after the events that unfold through the rest of the chapter. So start with me in verse 4. And notice right away who is writing this. It's not Daniel. Daniel has been uh, the likely author or perhaps someone else. We're not really sure. But we know who the author is of chapter 4 for sure. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is a little shocking, am I right? Like, do we have any problems with a pagan king writing part of the Bible? As long as God guides his hand. Well, exactly. And, and so that's the, the reality here is, is that regardless of who authors whatever book of the Bible you're reading, it's important to remember that there is one author in all of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, who breathes out the Scripture onto the pages as the people write. Remember when we talked in All Systems Go, our last a previous sermon series, we talked about Scripture and that Scripture is ultimately authored by God himself and therefore perfect. So whether it's Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar or whoever, it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one guiding the pen. Nebuchadnezzar is writing in verse 4. He says, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. <laughs> Having so, a good time. Sounds nice. Living the life. Things were good. Things were very good. In fact, the word prospering here, it's the Hebrew word that means full-flowered. Full flowered, full bloom. In other words, he was flourishing. Things were really good for Nebuchadnezzar. He was at ease. He was relaxing. He probably had his feet up while he was writing this. Now, this brings up a truth, and this is an important one, one that I want you to think on for a moment, and that is this that all worldly success has an expiration date. Hmm. <laughs> all worldly success has an expiration date. Jesus talked about this earthly rewards will eventually fail you. Matthew chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. There is always an expiration date on any worldly success. It doesn't mean that worldly success is bad. Okay, so let me just be clear about that. that is, that's not what it means. You can have good worldly success and, and wonderful. Maybe God has blessed you with a, a good career or a good business or, or, or whatever the case may be. But you need to understand that on that success, there is an expiration date. And at that point, that success will fail. Hearses don't carry, don't pull U-Haul trailers. Is that what you're trying that's to say? That's what I'm saying. I'm, everything will eventually spoil. It will go bad. As, as James mentioned a moment ago... Pride becomes a major issue for all of us. One of the problems that pride presents to us is that it, it wants us to believe the lie that worldly success will last. 
That if you just pour yourself into your job or your career or making money or whatever the case may be, again, all fine things, but if you pour all yourself into it, it'll last forever. That's what pride wants you to think. Just like that gallon of milk that I bought the other day for 50 cents. Yep. I was convinced that I was going to get a deal. You know what I did yesterday? I poured the entire gallon down the sink. Yep. 50 cent it, milk. It, 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 <laughs> come on, man. It had an expiration date. You're smarter than that. <laughs> Well, 50 I, cents? Know, I'm trying to be a good steward of God's sure, resources. Sure, sure. Okay, that's good. So this is what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. He's prideful. He believes that his success is going to last forever. He's at ease. He's relaxing. And then comes verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. This sounds almost like, what is it, the night before Christmas? Yeah, right. I don't know who, I don't know who translated this, but... <laughs> So he has a dream. He has another dream, and it's a weird one. It's a very bizarre one. And again, he calls for the court magicians, and again, they cannot solve the dream. And, and at this point, we're feeling a little annoyed with Nebuchadnezzar, are we not? We tried this once. We just did this. Yeah. You had a dream. You didn't understand it. You called the court magicians. They couldn't do it. You had to bring in Daniel. Here we are again. Why are we playing the same song and dance? Well, it seems obvious to us that this would be a really bad decision on his part to go to the court magicians first, because this was just two weeks ago when we talked about this, this first dream. Scholars think that this was perhaps 30 years after that first dream. So a lot of time has, has passed, three decades. A lot can happen in that amount of time. Eventually, Daniel comes in, and the king tells him the dream. He starts in verse 10. He says, I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Okay, so this is a huge tree that, that Nebuchadnezzar is dreaming of. You can see it from any part of the world. It's got food for everyone. The beasts are taking shade. The birds are making their nests. But then he says, a watcher... A holy one came down from heaven. Now, watcher or holy one, this is a way that the Old Testament would call an angel. All right, an angel. And this is what the angel said. He proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree, <laughs> lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter the fruit, let the beast flee from under it, the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Okay, so the angel is landscaping at this point. <laughs> Only the stump remains after he is finished. And then we get a shift in language in mm. verse 15. We move from the personal pronoun it to the, actually impersonal pronoun it, to the personal pronoun him. It says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Uh -oh. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So the tree is cut down and all of a sudden we're talking about a person and this person is going to have his mind taken from him and he is going to be like a beast of the field who eats the grass for seven years. That's what seven periods represents. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream and he kind of sits back and he's like, so, Dan, what do you think? And you can just imagine Daniel going like, oh, no. Uh-oh. This is not You're not going to like this. This, this is not going to end no. well. So he tells him. says that Daniel was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him, but he proceeds to interpret it. He says, King, you are the tree. Your kingdom is great and powerful like this tree. 
And the Most High God has decreed that you will be driven away for seven years. You're going to live like a beast. You're going to nibble on the grass until you recognize God as king over mankind, over the realm of humanity. Now, the stump is to assure you that restoration will take place. There is still roots in the ground. So there is, there is hope after this time. But this is bad news for the king. Now, I want to draw your attention to this because this is important. We've been talking about this over the last three weeks, that Daniel takes this moment to speak truth to the king. He's been appointed by God at the opportunity to serve the king by interpreting this dream for him. And now on the stage, he takes his moment to speak truth to Nebuchadnezzar. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Hand your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, he's, he is delivering to him a message of grace. There's still time to repent. There's still time to make things right. And perhaps if you do, God will continue to prosper you. He'll continue to bless you. All you have to do is repent. Now, ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar does not repent. And he ends up going through exactly what the dream predicts. Seven years of insanity, the powerful, prideful King Nebuchadnezzar lowered to a mere beast in the field. By the way, there is a technical term for this, isn't there? Yes, where you act boanthropy. Boanthropy. Yes. There is a tech where you, you're out eating grass with the cows thinking you're a cow. Yes, that is correct. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, now that's got to be a very rare occurrence. It does. And history tells us that he actually... Did go crazy. He did go crazy. Nebuchadnezzar right. did go Secular crazy. Secular records tell us that, that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, did go nuts. He belonged in a, in a padded room for so, the latter part of his life. I, I want to draw your attention to this for a minute, though, because this is, this is a life-altering thing that happens to him. This is seven years. This isn't like two weeks in the hospital or a month in the hospital, which is in and of itself hard. This is seven years of his life that he loses his mind and acts like a cow. <laughs> seven years. I mean, think for a moment about what the world was like seven years ago. Barack Obama was our president. COVID-19 didn't exist. The Dallas Cowboys were still bad at football. <laughs> nothing, sometimes nothing changes. Yeah. Oklahoma was still a bad place to live. I mean, right? There's <laughs> some things, some things change, some things stay the same. So imagine though, seven years, people that Nebuchadnezzar knew and perhaps loved had died in that amount of time. Stores had opened and shut. His kingdom looked different. Wow. Things were different. This was a big thing that happened. And look at his response, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all of his works are right and his ways are just. And then I want you to look at the very end. This is the part that I want you to pay attention to here, verse 37. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Hmm. That, folks, is who God is. That was the message Nebuchadnezzar got. It was a message that God wanted him to He can humble those who walk in pride. It was true then. It is true right now. He will humble those who walk in pride. You can either humble yourself before the king of heaven or the king of heaven will humble you. But he opposes pride. He opposes the proud. He will humble you. Pride over time brings Destruction. Destruction. You see it clearly as Nebuchadnezzar nibbles with the beast. Secondly, Belshazzar buys it at his banquet. Chapter 5, the next story that illustrates the principle that time and pride lead to destruction. Some years have passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And verse 1 mentions a king that follows later after Nebuchadnezzar, and his name is Belshazzar. 
Now, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know that the name that Daniel was given, the Babylonian name that he was given when they captured him, was Belteshazzar. Close, but not the same one. It's kind of like Saruman and Sauron. <laughs> yeah. Am I right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Whatever. Anyway, he was given this Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, but he's not the same. This is an actual Babylonian king that followed after Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting that for 2,500 years, there was no secular historical record that Belshazzar, that a king ever was over Babylon by the name of Belshazzar. So therefore, biblical critics use that to attack the Bible's reliability and its credibility. And it said there is no historical record of a Belshazzar who was the king of Babylon, yet the Bible says that. Therefore, the Bible is wrong. And then in the 1800s, I love it, and then, and then in the 1800s, archaeologists, and I love archaeologists because archaeologists have done nothing but verify the Bible and everything that they dug out of the dirt. Archaeologists discovered some cuneiform tablets from this era of time, and guess what? They mentioned a king of Babylon who was in fact the last king of Babylon before its destruction by the name of Belshazzar. And, but up until that time, the Bible was the only one that gave a real accurate chronology of the kings of Babylon. Now, just for fun, let's talk about the kings of Babylon. Remember, the nation of Babylon only lasted for 65 years. And 45 of those years, Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Okay, He reigned for 45 years. He died, we know historically, in 562 B.C., mm. A guy by the name of Amal Marduk, who came and uh, came to, to, to power right after him, lasted for two years after Nebuchadnezzar's 45 years, and he was murdered by his brother-in-law, which was quite common back in that day, in 560, just two years after Nebuchadnezzar died. Nagar Sherazer, who, who, who actually murdered his, who was the brother-in-law that murdered him, he didn't even last a full year because he was assassinated in a palace coup by a dude by the name of Nabonidus. Mm. Now, Nabonidus was into the moon god. He really worshipped the moon god. In fact, secular history tells us that he built temples to the moon god, and he probably became so enamored with the moon god that he was absent from the palace and from the duties of the king so much that Belshazzar, his son, reigned in his stead as co-regent. And there we have the final king of Babylon, which was... Uh, which was uh, uh, Belshazzar. Now, verse 2 tells us that Belshazzar is going to throw a banquet in his own honor. Okay? I mean, you know, he, I like me some me, and so let's throw a big ban banquet and just honor me. And so they're doing that, and verse 2 says that he says, you know what? We don't have to drink out of these Dixie cups. We should be drinking out of better vessels than this. What about those vessels that we pilfered from the Jerusalem temple when Nebuchadnezzar carried the Jews off and sacked the temple? They're made of gold and they're made of silver. Let's bring all of those things out and let's drink out of those vessels in honor of me. That sounds like high school parties I went to. <laughs> let's get rid of the Dixie Cups. Yeah. Get your parents. Yeah. I wasn't a church Get kid. mom's right. china and her, her, you know, her best. Anyway, but that's about that time when he does that, it's kind of like, okay, that, that's it. That's the final straw. The scripture tells us that a hand appears out of nowhere 
and begins to write graffiti on Belshazzar's wall. Now, folks, I've heard people say, you know what? I wish God would just write on the wall and tell me what he wants. No, you don't. You don't want God writing on your wall. Mm -mm. When God writes on the wall, it's not a good thing. It's mm -mm. never good. Mm -mm. And the king intuitively knew this. He probably knew he probably shouldn't be uh, bringing out the vessels of worship from the Jerusalem temple. They had never done that before, even though they didn't believe in the true God. Still, you didn't want to defile any God. You might hack him off. And so he kind of felt like probably that wasn't a good idea anyway, but he's already done it. And all of a sudden, this hand comes out of nowhere and begins to write on his wall. He is completely freaked out. And so what does he do? He calls Daniel because you remember he remembers that Daniel had, had interpreted things for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says, Daniel, can you tell me what this means? He intuitively knew that this must be the God of Daniel, that Daniel worshipped. So Daniel interpreted it for him. He read the words. They were written in Hebrew. Mini, mini, tikal, eupharsin. Now, I remember the first time in seminary that I was taking an Old Testament class and heard that. I thought, that's the coolest sounding thing I've ever heard. And, you know, I had my briefcase. You know, we called them kingdom kits in seminary. Back then, you know, you really had to look the part. You didn't have a backpack. Because we, we knew every, everything we needed for kingdom work was in the, in the, you know, in the briefcase. And, and that's why in between classes, people's knees were getting knocked out and, and everything because of all the kingdom kits that were, you know, shaking in the that hallway. Is, that is so Baptist. It really is so Baptist. It really was. But anyway... You know, so you're going down the hall in the seminary going, many, many, tickle you farce, and boy, that just really sounded cool. But it's the interpretation of what it means that's really cool. So Daniel then tells him what it means. Many, he says, God has numbered your kingdom, Belshazzar, and he's put an end to it. Tickle, you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Oh, that's not good. Mm -mm. Third, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, now get this, folks. This is not good. Why is this happening? Why is God writing on the wall giving this message to Belshazzar? We don't even have to guess because God's word tells us. Daniel says to him, this is why this is happening, king. Don't, I just want you to know. I want you to understand. This is why this is happening. Because you had the opportunity to see the, everything that my God, the true God, did for King Nebuchadnezzar. The interpretation of dreams, the blessings, and all of those kinds of things. Here I am, King, before you as his prophet. You've had all of this opportunity to turn to him and humble yourself before the true God of heaven and earth. Yet, verse 22 and 23, Yet you, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of these things, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought you the vessels of his house. He's talking about these vessels they're drinking wine out of now. Before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and of iron and of wood and of stone, which you do not see, you do not hear because they don't speak, you do not understand them, but the God in whose hand your life, breath, and all your ways have been given, you have not glorified. Mm. 
You see, he's saying to Belshazzar, he said, Belshazzar, do you want to know why this happened? Why, why meeny, meeny, tickle you, parson, has been written on your wall? Why it means you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting? Why your kingdom is going to be given over to the Medo-Persians? It's because you have not humbled yourself before the God who has given you the opportunity. Over and over and over, king. You could have bowed before the true God of heaven and earth, yet you have exalted yourself. And verse 30 tells us that that night, Belshazzar was slain as the Medo-Persians came into Babylon and wiped the nation of Babylon off of the face of the earth. And they lasted only for 65 years. The entire nation of Babylon that you've heard so much about only was in existence for 65 years. And 45 of those years, Nebuchadnezzar was a king. Now there is a theme here, isn't there, from chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in chapter 5. And here is the theme. The theme is that both of them had the opportunity to know the true and living God. They had powerful witnesses in Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three amigos. But each time they chose to exalt themselves in their pride and refuse to bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar spends the last years of his life nibbling with the beasts, and Belshazzar buys it at the banquet. Mm. You see, they demonstrated the principle. It's an immutable principle. It will not be destroyed. That pride plus time brings destruction. Now, there may be a period of time when your tree is blossoming, when you're living the life, when you look and you say, everything is wonderful, everything is fine. And we have a tendency to think, well, this, it's not going to happen to me because you see, look how good things are going for me. But the spiritual principle says you can defy this for a while, but ultimately your life is going to just demonstrate this principle that time plus your pride is going to equal destruction. That's right. So obviously... Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar are given to us as negative examples of what we are not to do. So here's the question for the next 15, 20 minutes as we finish out. Let's go to the scripture and let's talk about what God's call is. Here it is. God's call is for us to bow down. That is the only antidote to human pride is to bow in humility and submission before the true and the living God. And when we do not, time plus that pride brings destruction. You could sum up both of these chapters really with Daniel 4.37, that he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That it's not just merely time and pride that brings destruction, that it is time and pride and Yahweh <laughs> who bring destruction. That is really the, the reality. The reality is that having... It kind of defies the old grandfather view of God. That, you know, he's just like the old grandfather. This and you nice know, he man. just loves everybody. He's just a nice old man. And he's not upset with anything that no. anybody does. No. Not true at all. No, not true at all. Not true at all. Here's the reality. Having unshakable faith. That's what we've titled this whole sermon series. It's what we're talking about. Having unshakable faith does not mean not ever bowing down. It means bowing down in the proper direction. That's really what we get from, from these individuals, Daniel and the three amigos. Daniel and his friends are asked to bow down and eat the king's food, and they reject it. Oh, they stand. They do not bow. 
They're asked to bow down to the golden statue. They reject it. They stand. But don't think that they never bow down. They do. They just bow down in the proper direction towards God himself and to him alone. And we are called to do the same thing. It's not a suggestion. It's not practical advice. It's not to make you have a better spiritual walk. It's a (laughs) commandment of God. We are commanded by God to bow before him in humility. So when folks like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and even ourselves are unwilling to do so, it's, it's breaking a commandment. It's, it's direct rebellion against him. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is not a suggestion it's in, the, it's in the imperative mood in Greek. It, it's it's the, the mood that we use to convey commands. So, so notice, again, there is a promise attached to this command. You could think about this verse as, a, as an if-then statement. If you humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, then he will exalt you. That word exalt, it's a word that means to lift up, to raise, to lift upward. So here's a truth. Here's a good kingdom truth. In the kingdom of God... The way up is down. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. If you will lower yourself before him, God will raise you up. I heard somebody say that one time this way, that in the Christian kingdom, in the kingdom of God, we crawl down to greatness. That's right. We don't climb. Our world says you climb to greatness. You step on whoever you have to to get there. And the kingdom of God says, no, you crawl into greatness, downhill. If you lower yourself before him, God raises you. Conversely, and this is important, if you raise yourself up before him, God will lower you. Mm -hmm. Because you're acting out of pride. It's the opposite of humility. It's the opposite of bowing down. Pride. So the question becomes, how does God feel about pride? What does God have to say about pride? Mm -hmm. James is going to talk to us for a moment about God's attitude towards pride. Just just think for a moment. Look at this. And just a very small smidgen of what Scripture says, that how God feels toward pride. Not just pride of Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, but a, a Christ follower, someone who is secured for eternity. How does God feel about when you begin to exalt yourself in pride, when you stop bowing down in humility before him the way he said, when you begin to think that you're something more than you are? How does the Father feel about that? Well, Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 17 says there are seven things that God hates. The first on the list is haughty eyes, Mm. pride. Second, Proverbs 15, 25, it says the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Now, the house he's talking about there is not brick and mortar. It's talking about the house of your life. Now, think about this, folks. Jesus said that we are to build our life upon the rock We're to build our house upon the rock, which is obedience to him. He's not talking about your physical house. He's talking about the house of your life. He's talking about the house of your relationships. He's talking about everything that has to do with your life. The scripture says that God will tear down the house of the proud. Whenever we begin to think that we are something we are not, then all of a sudden destruction begins to happen in life. Proverbs 16, 5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That is a, that's a bad word, abomination. Think about that. It means something that is detestable, something that is aberrant. That pride represents this complete state of anti-God and abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 13, 11, God says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud 
and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. This doesn't sound like a gentle old grandfather that's just kind of sitting back, kind of not involved. He has a, he has a, he has a definite attitude toward pride that raises itself up. How many of you remember Lonesome Dove? The best miniseries ever created. Ever. The story of two retired Texas Rangers back in the 1800s that find themselves on a cattle drive, Captain Woodrow. Come on now. Can y'all remember? Mike got it. Woodrow Call and Captain Augustus McRae. Now, Augustus was kind of an easygoing dude. He could get bad when he wanted to, but Woodrow, you never saw him smile in the entire series, six or seven, whatever it was. One time he rides up, and there's a soldier who's beating stuffing out of Newt. Remember Newt, 14, 15-year-old kid? And he's just beating the stuffing out of Newt. So Woodrow gets off his horse, and by the time he gets through with the guy, the guy is knocked out. He's on the ground. He's rolling there. He just tortures the guy. And then as he gets back up on his horse, he says, I hate pride in a man. I won't tolerate it. Now you... You, th- you think about God saying that. That's not what Woodrow said, was it? I hate, I hate rude, behavior, in a rude man. behavior in a man. If God was saying this, he would say, I hate pride in a man. And I will not tolerate it. And he that. will get off his horse and beat it out of you. Hey, I can, I can promise you, folks, there have been times in my life, and they come more often than I want to admit, when I began to think that I was something more than I was, and every time I can look back and I can see how the Father kicked my legs right out from under me. Yep. And those are some of the most brutal experiences of my life, but they were also some of the most learning experiences of my life because it reminded me I am nothing. Yep. That's why I don't use titles. I don't use the title pastor. I don't use the title doctor. I don't let people call me those things because I want to be reminded. It's the reason I park on the grass. I don't park in the parking lot. It's the reason I do a lot of things because I need to remind myself every day of my life, you are nothing. We tell, we, James, Jesus. James told me this a long time ago, and it's a philosophy that I've, I've lived and, and, and try to demonstrate in every aspect of ministry, which is this. We take what we do very seriously. We just don't take ourselves too seriously. Because when we begin to take ourselves too seriously, we begin to think that we are something that we are not because we have done this, we have done that, or we've been here, or we've been there. And the reality is we are nothing without Him. People, we're just not that great. We're just not that great. We're just not that great. And then there's James 5, 6, 4, 6, which says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, the book of James is written to Christians. And he's, James is reminding them. In fact, a lot of the book of James is about that they puffed themselves up yep. and they gave the best seats, you know, in the place of worship to the, to the finely dressed. And, and he's writing it to chastise Christians, folks. And he's, let me tell you something, folks. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to them. That means that God lines up across the line of, the scr- of scrimmage from us whenever we begin to walk in arrogant pride rather than in humility and bowing down before him. I I played football in the 7th and 8th grade. We were undefeated. 
Seventh and eighth grade, we were undefeated. Now, I was a wingback. We don't use that term much anymore. I was not very big, but I could run like a spotted ape, and I was mean as a snake. And we had a great team. I mean, all seventh and eighth grade, we never lost a game. Do spotted apes run fast? Yeah, they do. They do. A spotted ape does anything it wants to do, okay? Our coach was Coach Bob Honeycutt, and he was mean. He walked with a, he had a, a bad leg, and he walked with a hitch, and he liked to give licks backhanded like this. I look back now, and I know what Coach Bob was doing. He was trying to bring us down to our, to our level. He scheduled a practice game on a Saturday morning against the Pecos, Texas Junior Varsity. Now, Pecos is a bad place. I always say that to find Pecos... You go west as far as you can and go south until you smell it and you're there. Now, my hometown, 32 miles away, was the Taj Mahal compared to Pecos. It was Monahans. And these people were evil people, okay? These Pecosites. They were like Moabites or, right. or whatever. Philistines. So he scheduled a Saturday morning practice game with the junior varsity, ninth and 10th graders of Pecos. And when we saw them suited up, we thought, oh my gosh, these guys are huge. They had mustaches. They had jobs. They were married with families. <laughs> so on the first offensive set, like I said, I was a wingback. Pat Rodriguez, who was our quarterback, we called him Pat Rod, looks at me in the, in the huddle with an evil look, and he calls the play. Tight X right, 224 on set. I still remember the play. It was one of my plays to carry the ball. Now, 224 meant it was a 200 series play. I was the two back and was going to carry the ball through the four hole, which was to the left of the center. And I looked at Rod and I said, Are you kidding me? First play. And like I said, he looked back with an evil grin. I lined up, I looked across, and that linebacker was 10 feet tall. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, and he already had a 5 o'clock shadow. He had probably done time in the state pen and come back to repeat the 10th grade for the third time. Pat Rod got the ball, handed to me. I took a half step, and I woke up on the ground. The guy, that linebacker, just walked right over the top of our offensive line and threw me down. And they beat us like a rented mule. So to be clear, he was, he was faster than a spotted ape. He was Is faster that... than a spotted The spotted ape didn't even get all out of his three-point stance. But you know what? We didn't talk any more smack. James 5, 6, God is opposed to the proud. He lines up on the other side of the line of scrimmage from us when we walk in our pride. Knocks us on our keister in order to teach us bow down. This is the message. Bow down. Mm. Bow down. Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be like Belshazzar. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, said that God gave him the thorn in the flesh. Why? So he would not exalt himself. He said, I know I've had such spiritual experiences that if I did not have this thorn in my flesh, I would exalt myself and as an act of God's grace. So I will not walk in pride. He gave me this thorn. Mm. Now, Derek, 
Wrap it up for us. Let's, let's talk what about do we what, do? what to do. Let me give you three ways you can combat pride in your life. Number one, by daily acknowledging my need for Christ. It's the first step. Acknowledging that there is nothing in myself that is lasting worth giving to the Lord. Outside of Christ, everything that I touch is marred by sin and death. In other words, I am powerless on my own. That sounds a lot like the 12 steps. So hmm. while we're in the neighborhood, let's put it into those terms for a moment. To use 12-step jargon, this, this first three steps are really kind of what we're after here. We admitted that we were powerless over whatever it was that we were doing mm -hmm. and that our lives had become unmanageable. The first step to killing pride is, is admitting you are powerless to change on your own. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, I made the decision to turn the will and care of my life over to God. This is a, not a one-time deal. This is an everyday kind of deal. Now, that's just the first three steps. Step, so, so we acknowledge our need for Christ. That's the first way you, you kill pride in your life. Day by day by day. Number two, you repent of your sin before him. So you, you not only acknowledge that you need him, but that you repent, you turn away from the very things that are moving you away from God himself. And you do that by, again, demonstrating some of these steps. This is just a practical way of looking at it. Step four, took a fearless and searching moral inventory. In other words, I examined the wrongs, the sins that I have committed. Step five, admitted to God, self, and one other person the exact nature of my wrongs. This is confession. Step six, became entirely ready for God to remove these defects. Step seven, asked him to remove them. This sounds like scripture. Right. Right. It's Duh. a practical way of doing this. Because People, the 12 steps Christ, are scripture. Christians who, who, who say in, in, in the past, who have said to me, you know, I don't, I don't do the 12 steps. I just, just give me the scripture. I'm like, you've either never read the 12 steps or you've never read the Bible. And probably both. And most of the time it's both. Yeah. Most of the time, it's both. I could keep going, but I think you get the point. Acknowledging my need for Christ and then repenting of my sin before him. Saying, Lord, I have sinned. I confess it to you. Here's what I've done. Laying it out. Please, take this. I am turning away. That's what repentance means, to turn the other direction. And then finally, number three, by giving my life to serve him, check this out, by serving others. You know, you realize, you cannot serve God. You, can't, you cannot do it. Acts 17, Paul, Paul tells the, the people there, he says, as if God has any need for you to serve him. Now how the, can I serve him? He has no need. The, the God who gives you breath and life needs your help? Really? The God, I'm going to go out and help you out here, God. The God who's sustaining you right now, this very moment, who's keeping your heart beating, you think you're going to bring something to the table for him? No, no chance. It reminds me of the story of the, the, the guy who makes a bet with God, the atheist. He says, I can, I can build a better sandcastle than you can. And God says, okay, give it your best. And so the atheist reached down and he begins using the sand to form his house. And God goes, hold on a minute. Use your own sand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have nothing to bring to the table. You cannot serve God. But you can and are commanded to serve others mm -hmm. in his name. And that, so you want to remove pride from your life? You want to humble yourselves before him? Acknowledge your need for him. Confess your sins before him and then go in his name and serve others. And give yourself away. Put others above yourself. You'll kill pride quickly. But here's the catch. It's not a one-time one mm -hmm. deal. 
It's daily, every day. You choose today to do this. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Folks, this is such a, it's such a different kind of message than we normally do. We love to do verse by verse. And, but when you're talking about narrative scripture like this, there's a, there's a story, and the story is powerful. Yep. And God gives us these powerful stories to say, look at this, learn from this. Nebuchadnezzar didn't. Belshazzar didn't. But the Apostle Paul did. Yep. The Apostle Paul understood his need to be humbled. And he was the great apostle to the Gentiles. Yet the Apostle Paul celebrated the fact that I had given him something that was going to keep him from exalting himself because he knew if he exalted himself, he would not have my blessing. Listen, folks, we need, we, need, we need to hear that day in and day out. About the time that we begin to think that we are something is when we are ready to go down that path to where God says, no, I'm going to show you. You are nothing. Nothing. And that's a good thing. Because then we can just release it to him and say, okay, Father, what do you want to do with my life? I love that 12th step. Serve others in my name. Give yourself away. When we walk in our pride, we want to keep ourselves, don't we? Mm -hmm. When we understand that we are nothing without Christ, then we're willing to let go and give it away. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission of the kingdom of God. Derek, lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, just a, a powerful example, two powerful examples of how pride and time bring forth destruction. And I pray, God, that it would be a, a sobering message for us, one that, that really calls us to, to question the way we live our lives, the way we orient our lives before you. Is there pride? Is there, is there something in myself that I think much of, that I think highly of, that I have exalted? Lord, help me lower it before you, that you would exalt me. We love you. We thank you for this place where we can come and and open your word and be honest about who we are before you and all of our shortcomings, knowing that you are a God of grace and mercy, but one that at the same time does not tolerate pride and haughtiness. We thank you for this. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. God bless you.